I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, Pastor Eric Dew has already referred, it to, uh, referred to this passage for us, but I want to uh, just root what we're doing this evening in this text as well. And uh, as I said this morning, we're looking at the second of ten foundational principles of a God-centered life. And uh, tonight we're looking at the authority of Scripture. And when you came in this evening, you would have had, I hope, handed to you a, a couple of papers, one on the Old Testament, one on the New Testament. We're not going to go through those in detail this evening. Uh, I will refer to them perhaps occasionally a little further along through the talk. But I want to give you a sense of some of the, the scholarship behind what we're talking about this evening. But uh, to root our discussion, uh, uh, this Second Timothy chapter 3, verse uh, 16, obviously this is Paul's letter to Timothy. Uh, Paul is uh, writing to Timothy, uh, the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and he's encouraging to stand up for the truth in, in a context where there was uh, much false teaching. And he's urging him not to follow the example of the false teachers, but instead to follow his example. So I'm just giving you a little bit of, of context there. If you see verse 10, he says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience. So this is all Paul's example that he's setting uh, before uh, Timothy. And uh, then as part of that example, he wants, verse 14, him to continue what you, you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how, verse 15, from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, of course, uh, the scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. That's the purpose of the Bible, to point us to faith in Christ Jesus. And then this famous text uh, that we already had referenced this evening, all scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, sometimes people say, therefore, uh, rather than talking about the inspiration of Scripture, we should talk about the expiration of Scripture. It's breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God, which in context here Paul is referring to Timothy and his uh, work as a, as a preacher and as a leader of God's people. He's a man of God referencing the Old Testament prophets he's in that line because he's holding on to scripture preaching God's word he's therefore a man of God that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work and therefore uh, famously in chapter 4 he charges Timothy to uh, verse verse 1 he charges him in the presence of God and then verse 2 to to preach the word so as I'm saying as, as I say this evening we're looking at the authority of scripture this is a hugely important um, theme, of course, uh, for any church and uh, at any time. Uh, I want to read out for you um, a famous moment that will illustrate that, I think. It, it took place on the 14th of May, 1521, and there were representatives of church and empire had gathered to listen to one um, slightly awkward, burly, difficult German. And there was an audible hush, the re reports of the account say, and finally he said this. Since then, your serene majesty and your lordship seek a simple answer. I will give it in this manner, neither horned nor toothed, Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scripture or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope 
nor councils alone, as is clear they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I have been conquered by the scriptures adduced to me and my conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant because to act against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. Uh, the official record of that moment finishes there, but as you, can, you perhaps know, the, the, there were um, many popular accounts that were spread very fast throughout Europe soon afterwards, circulated like wildfire of this moment. And those popular accounts record a final line that doesn't appear in the official record, the final line, perhaps whispered by Martin Luther under his breath. I think that's probably the most likely reason why they were not in the official records but were in the popular accounts. He said famously at the end, I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. So to be captivated by the scriptures. It's always been an important theme, but it's an especially important theme at the beginning of the 21st century. And as we, we go through this, we need to think through clearly what the problem is that some people say with the authority of the scriptures. What solution uh, we can adduce and then how the scriptures are to function in the life of the church and in individual lives and in our family lives. So problem, solution, function is the structure of the talk. Okay? So first of all, um, the, uh, the problem. When you listen to people when they talk about why they find it hard to believe in the authority of scriptures, the problem that they tend to, um, the, the problems they tend to talk about are grouped basically, I would say, into three categories. One category of problems is, is historical criticism. That is, uh, for various scholarly reasons, it is viewed as hard to take seriously historical accuracy of the Bible in, in a traditional or conservative sense. And there are various well-known um, 19th century scholars who have become hugely influential. Graf Velhausen, two separate individuals, is a famous uh, 19th century scholars and their, their successors, on and on and on. And by the way, it's always been interesting to me when I started to listen to some of this sort of teaching when I was doing my own work and, and studies, how separated were the different departments at the university level in this regard. You had the, the biblical scholars who were into this historical criticism sort of thing of various kinds, but they were actually working w with a philosophical approach because what drove it was an inability to believe that God could do the miraculous or predict the future. And ironically enough, because I sort of worked also in the philosophical department, I knew that their philosophical framework was deeply out of date. 
So it oft, often struck me as extremely ironic. You know how, perhaps you do, or maybe you don't, but how universities can be. You have one faculty that never, one department never talks to the other department. If you could just get the experts in this biblical scholarship department to speak to the experts in the philosophy department, they would find that the philosophy they're working with had been out of date for a couple of hundred years at least. Uh, Of course, we don't live in a Newtonian physics world, at least not exclusively anymore, with Einsteinian um, relativity and quantum mechanics and all the rest of the strange stuff that is around today that has affected the philosophical approach. At any rate, one, one problem that is often adduced is historical criticism. Uh, sometimes it is said that the way different books are written, by the style in which they are written, you cannot possibly believe the same author wrote Second Timothy, for instance, as also wrote First Timothy. There's a different style. This too is often struck me as almost amusing. I, I, I've, as some of you know, I've written a few books. And I remember one book I wrote which was written in a reasonably popular kind of style. And then a little bit later, I wrote another book that was written for a more scholarly style. And it struck me that if someone had applied the same criteria to the different stylistic approaches, they might have thought that you know, Josh Moody A. wrote this and the other one was written by his amanuentheus, in, 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 secretary of Josh Moody, but wasn't really written by him, was pretending by him because it's a totally different style. And in fact, some people have done this sort of thing with Tolkien, by the way. You can do analysis of Tolkien's Hobbit and compare it to his style in The Lord of the Rings, and you could say by some of the same standards, it must have been written by two different people. But there is a, there is a historical critical uh, problem that some people uh, um, have. Uh, another problem that people sometimes have is a, a moral objection, particularly about the Old Testament, And we're moving fast through a lot of this stuff. We've just got 25, 30 minutes or so, and some of this we could easily spend hours and hours thinking through. But, so I'm just going to give you some highlights. But when people say the God of the Old Testament and what happened in the Old Testament, some awful things that happened there, how can you possibly believe this is authoritative for you? Uh, it, it's a moral objection to the authority of Scripture. For instance... Uh, In Genesis chapter 38, uh, the story is told of how Judah, uh, I would say basically raped uh, uh, Tamar. It's in the Bible. How is that possible? And then people have difficulties with that for understandable reasons. But it's a story. The Bible describes stories about things that it doesn't approve of, that it thinks are deeply evil, but it happened. And in fact, in the story in Genesis, that Judah and Tamar in Genesis Genesis chapter 31 is deliberately put there as a contrast to Joseph and his um, uh, sexual purity. 
So by no means is it giving approval to the way that Judah behaved. Uh, another common objection that people have, and obviously we can't deal with them all, but another common objection that people have is with the, uh, the conquest of um, uh, the promised land and the way in the book of Joshua it, it, it says that uh, God's people are to totally destroy the inhabitants. Is this not uh, um, genocide? But again, it's to, it's to misunderstand the 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 um, in in the in, in the the papers I've given you I've given you some further reading and the person who's um, uh, uh, there's there some the person who's particularly good on this is someone called Kitchen who's a Egyptologist a professor emeritus from uh, 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 I think the University of Liverpool. But when you look at the, the story of the conquest, what you notice, you have to understand really two or three things. First of all, the people who are attacked and God uses his people as a vehicle for his judgment upon, his wrath upon, these are people who have been committing for a long time the most heinous, gross crimes, including sacrificing and, yes, murdering young, sacrificing children. And what is more, God very clearly says to his people that if they end up committing the same sort of crimes, they too will come under the judgment of God, which of course is what happened when they were put into exile. And then you say, well, what about this total destruction thing? But you're dealing here with ancient hyperbole, the exaggerated accounts. In fact, sometimes the book of Joshua will tell you, um, Joshua, I think it's chapter 10, verse 20, in one verse, and you can see this throughout this, it will say that they've been totally destroyed, and then in the same verse talk about the remnant who are still there. What it is saying is they have been defeated. Um, It's not talking about what we would term literal genocide. And, uh, but at any rate, people do have moral objections to the Bible, but it's got to be weighed up, of course, with the way in which the influence of the Scriptures down through history has led to the ceasing of the gladiatorial games, uh, the protection of young children, and the ending of uh, the barbaric practices in the ancient world of exposing children to death. And, and still today, Christians, because of the Bible's view of the image of uh, all humans being made in the image of God, are the forefront of the, of the, of the pro-life movement. The first hospitals for the poor in the ancient world, only the very rich could get that kind of medical attention. Uh, the ceasing of, of slavery through the work of evangelical leaders. All this is the influence of Scripture. But yes, some people do have uh, moral objections. Um, the other objection, I said there are three categories basically, which is the historical criticism, moral objection. The, the third category that people tend to have is relevance. Surely it's out of date. Surely if you want to really have an impact today, leave the Bible to one side. Don't teach the Scriptures. Don't put the Bible functionally at the heart of what we're doing. It's irrelevant. It's a sort of 
At the very least, it's a kind of chronological snobbery. And at worst, it's a strange view of God. How can God and what he says be bound by a time quantity of relevant or irrelevant? He is the eternal God. His word is always relevant. By definition, which isn't to say that when we look at the scriptures, of course, which also have uh, human authors, though fully inspired by God, the doctrine of the verbal plenary inspiration, that is that every word is fully inspired by God, that there are human authors as well in a historical context, yes, for sure. But God's word is ever relevant. Um, often people uh, bring up the issue of science in this context, and we're certainly not going to get into all that tonight. But one little thought to have in your mind about that is that scientists and the birth of science was inspired, of anything, by the same movement that inspired the Reformation. That the early scientists actually were inspired by the reformers' desire to go back to the book of God. They would therefore go back to the book of nature and find out for themselves that that was the birth of modern science. Oh, it's, it's ever relevant. But those are the problems that people have, historical criticism, moral objection, and relevance. What um, solutions can we uh, adduce and come, and come up with? There are basically three, uh, three categories of solutions. I've given you three categories of problems. There are three categories of solutions, and I have a, a preference for the third uh, one category is called evidentialist, and that is the, the Bible is defended by looking at the various evidences that there are for the historical reliability of, uh, of the Scriptures, by comparing it with archaeology, by the manuscript evidence. And you can find a lot of that in the, in the documents that you got passed out this evening, the, the very close um, uh, time lapse between the earliest surviving documents of the New Testament and comparing that with other ancient documents and, and many other evidential arguments like that. That's one approach, and it's certainly a strong approach. But, of course, the problem that some people have with that approach is that if, in the end, my confidence in the Scriptures is rooted in my reason and my evidence, then the ultimate authority is my reason and my evidence, not God and his word. And so for folk like that, they would tend to want to emphasize what is sometimes called presuppositional approach rather than the evidential approach. Uh, Great American theologians like Cornelius Van Til tended to emphasize this. That is that God's word is self-attesting. And we often experience that, don't we? I, I, I was just um, having a conversation with someone this morning talking about someone who uh, came to faith through God's word. 
realizing that the Bible was speaking to them then and there, that God knew what they'd been through that week, that he spoke, that the word of God is self-attesting, that that, that surely is true. This is why one of the best responses to the authority of Scripture, someone is questioning that with you, if you've got a Christian, you've got non-Christian friends, and they're saying to you, how can I believe the Bible is God's word? One of the best responses is simply to say, well, why don't you come and read it with me and see what you think? Let's look at Mark's gospel, or Luke, or something. Let's read it together. Uh... It's certainly a powerful approach, and it is predominantly one of the reasons why we preach from the Bible on Sunday morning, so that people can taste and see that the Lord is good. That said, it's susceptible on its own to critique, isn't it? Because if we say that the Bible is self-attesting, it can feel like it's a, a circular argument. The Bible says it's God's word, and it is God's word, and it just goes round and round in circles. But note this, there is a difference between circular arguments and viciously circular arguments. At some level, all arguments are circular, but they should spiral up rather than just go round and round and round in circles, not be viciously circular. And the presuppositional argument isn't really viciously circular, but there is a circular element to it. And when you, if you do evangelism among people of other religions, you'll sometimes find they'll, they'll make arguments about what they believe is authoritative in ways that are viciously circular. I remember well having a conversation with a um, Mormon who came to knock on my door. I always think it's, I feel slightly sorry when I get a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon who knocks on my door. I, never, I think they just don't know what they've got themselves into. Uh, and I remember we had some, uh, yeah, it was, this was another occasion, we had some Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, some Mormons who were talking to us, and I started, quote, I said, well, that's not what it says in the Greek, and they pretty much went, went, ran out the door, and that was it. That was the end of the conversation. But with this particular Mormon, I remember uh, that, that it was when I was in England, they were on the, uh, knocking on the door, and this person started talking, and I said, but what what reason do you have to believe that the Book of Mormon is authoritative? I mean, what reason? And the person had no reason. They they just said, well, it's beautiful. I said, well, yes, but what, what reason do you have to believe that? And in the end, the poor person just said, well, it's been revealed to me. I was like, well, okay. Well, Christians, though, are not people of the dark. We are people of the light. And of course we have reason to believe. But it is reason that is enlightened reason. Our eyes are opened so we see the truth. So this is why, personally, when I'm doing apologetics, like I am a little bit tonight, though obviously it's a church context, and I'm assuming most of us, though perhaps not all of us, are Christians. When I'm doing apologetics, I tend to combine those two, the presuppositional and the evidential. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, one of my great heroes, uh, influenced me in this regard. He had a whole ton of evidences. You, you would think, given that he was, uh, as he would call himself, by definition a Calvinist, you would think that he wouldn't have evidence as a basis for his apologetics. But he certainly did 
lots of it. But there was a a bigger God-centered part of it too. And what I discovered when I was studying this, this is that there is an ancient approach to that which is rooted really in Augustine and which influenced Edwards and uh, Anselm, which in Latin is credo ut intelegam, which simply means faith-seeking understanding. This God opens our eyes so that we see the truth. You say, what does that mean? What it means, I think, very simply is this. Say you're, not someone, you're someone who's not yet a believer. I would say to you, let's look at, uh, 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 let's assume for the moment that Luke's gospel is basically historically reliable. You don't have to believe everything he says, but roughly speaking, it's a good historical text. Most historians would agree with that. So let's assume that. Let's read it together. And we read it together. And you come across Jesus. And your mind starts to be blown away by who he is. And you want to give your life to him. You start to follow him. And you read him more and more and more. And you start to find how he treats other people. And you think, well, I should treat people like that too. The poor. The disadvantaged. And then you come across how he treats the scriptures. That's a thought. In fact, he quotes from the Scriptures even the bits that are not direct quotations from God in the Bible as if God is speaking. Uh, Famously, uh, Matthew chapter 19. The Creator said, referring to what the author, probably Moses, wrote rather than quote-unquote God said. Because for Jesus... The whole thing is God speaking. It's that authoritative. Well, if that's Jesus' approach to the Old Testament, that should be mine. I may have many questions about all sorts of things, but if that's the way Jesus approaches the Scripture and he's my Lord, then I'll treat the Old Testament that way too. What about the New Testament? You keep on reading. You come across his commissioning of his disciples in John 14 and 16. And you come across how Jesus tells them that the Spirit will lead them into all truth. Not meaning primarily that the Spirit will help us illuminate uh, the truth, though of course he does. But primarily those apostles of Jesus will be given by the Spirit to the remembrance of everything that Jesus said. Jesus promised the Spirit would do that for him and they would be led into be able to know all truth. And they became the, 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 the authors or the authorized, those who authorized the New Testament scriptures. And if you have questions about canon and which books are in, you'll find, particularly in my Old Testament paper, there's a whole long section about that. Well, there's Jesus. I'm following Jesus. That's his approach to the Old Testament. That's his approach to the New Testament. I may have many questions. But if that's how he approaches the Bible, then that's my approach too. And within that framework, I begin to explore things. When I uh, was studying a lot, and I used to have questions about the Bible and all that sort of thing, and 
uh, doubts and all that, what I decided to do was that whenever I came across a question I had, I would not bury it. What I find uh, for Christians is if they have a doubt or unsure about something, what tends to happen is they bury that question in the back of their mind because they're embarrassed that they have that question. And then it sort of eats away. And then years later, they're not sure they believe anymore, but they can't quite remember why. So instead of doing that, I decided if I had a question, I'd immediately try to answer it. I found that most of the questions I had, I could answer fairly rapidly. Not all of them. When I couldn't answer them, I wrote them down. I came back to them for the next week or so. I found then that most of those questions, fairly rapidly as I prayed and thought, I could come to an answer. When there are questions that I couldn't figure out, I went to an older Christian, a more experienced Christian, and I asked them the question. Most of the time they had a good answer. What I discovered was that I was 98, 99% sure about the truth of the Bible and God. And then I thought to myself, given philosophical realities and all that, I'm not 98, 99% sure I'm even alive. That's a pretty good proportion. And so by faith in Jesus as our Lord and his approach to the Scriptures, we come to a place of resting by faith that seeks understanding in the truth of the Bible. And it starts more and more to do its work in us. And it becomes harder and harder to ever even imagine how anyone could doubt the power of the Bible. So problem, solution, and then uh, function. How then should it function in our lives, which of course is the practical level and the most important in many ways, the, 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 the mental and the, the, uh, the, the, the internal leads to the practical. There must be fruit that comes from the faith. And so we've had problem, solution, now function. How should it function in our lives? Well, Scripture should have a functional centrality in three ways, devotional, evangelistic, and discipleship. A functional centrality. Uh, the church planter that we as a church are supporting out in Austria quoted this from John Stott, and ever since he quoted it, I've been using it wherever I can because I, I think it's so, so good in this regard about uh, the, the functional centrality of the Bible. John Stott said, uh, the work, uh, the Word of God does the work of God by the Spirit of God to the glory of God. Typical John Stott little crystal clarity sentence. The Word of God does the work of God by the Spirit of God to the glory of God. Now, that, compare that approach to some popular Christian approaches which are marginalizing the Bible and say people don't need that anymore. Well, how on earth are they going to discover who Jesus is if we don't tell them about the Jesus of the Bible? There's no, there's no other Jesus. 
How on earth is there going to be fruit in a harvest if we're not sowing the seed? For it is the word of God that does the work of God by the spirit of God to the glory of God. We should never put the spirit of God and the word of God at variance and opposition to each other. We should never be a word church, but not a spirit church, for the sword of the spirit is the word of God. It is the word of God that does the work of God by the spirit of God to the glory of God, for then he gets the glory because it's his word. So the the scriptures should therefore uh, have a functional centrality in our lives. Uh, In our devotional lives, In your devotional life, uh, when you have a quiet time and you, you are spending time with the Lord, if it is true that God speaks through his word, surely then that devotional time should have at its heart an open Bible. Surely. Our devotional time should not merely be reading what um, Oswald Chambers said, as godly and a great man as he was, or what any other preacher says. We want the fun- and you certainly read that, read, listen to whatever you want as well, but the functional centrality of Scripture in your devotional time, surely there should be an open Bible. I loved how uh, Billy Graham used to describe his devotional times. He said that he would read the Bible until the Spirit of God underlined something for him. I know there are lots more complicated techniques that people have about how to interpret the Bible, the the context and uh, and, and the application, what it says, what it means, what it means for me, the historical context, and all that is important. But I think sometimes we over-intellectualize it. Think uh, tomorrow morning when you're trying to get out of bed and you're rusting around for a decent cup of coffee. Pour over, by the way, is the best. Let me recommend it. You can possibly get it. Um, or maybe you like tea. You, you're truly sanctified and you prefer tea. <laughs> but whatever it is. And... You're thinking, oh, I've got to rush out the door. I've got to do this, that, and the other. And I've just sit down with his word and say, Lord, speak to me. Isn't it the most amazing drama that we as Christians have the word of God to speak to us? And therefore, should be functionally central to our devotional lives. But not just our devotional lives, uh, also our evangelistic methodology. Uh, We do pre-evangelism events as a church. Uh, We had a wonderful event on Saturday uh, with uh, families coming in with uh, bouncy castles and all that sort of thing. Those are great. We Tuesdays together are sort of pre-evangelistic. We we, we need to have times when we just connect with the community, our individual lives in a church, and just have fun together. That's all great. And we, we should do that. But if it is the Word of God that does the work of God by the Spirit of God to the glory of God, 
then at the heart of our evangelism must be the gospel, which means there must be the Bible. I loved how John Chapman, an Australian evangelist, used to put it about evangelism. He said most evangelism, evangelism by definition is the gospel to non-Christians. And most evangelism is either the gospel to Christians or it's not the gospel to non-Christians. But if it is the Word of God that does the work of God by the Spirit of God to the glory of God, yes, pre-evangelism, for sure. Friendship, very important. But then we want the Word at the heart of it, don't we? And then our, so our devotional life, our evangelistic methodology, and then our discipleship techniques. We, I think we do this, uh, this is in the warp and the woof, uh, this, is, this is the lifeblood of College Church in our discipleship groups, in our men's and women's Bible studies. None of this is purely, it's not, this isn't intellectualized. This is because it is God's Word and His power is at work through His Word in, our, um, in, all our, in all our small groups, which doesn't mean we don't have fun. We should have fun times too and play together and rejoice together. Of course, Martin Luther was, was great at that as well, wasn't he? He was, must have been a, quite a character to hang around. He had a lot of fun. Um, and sometimes I think some, we need to put the fun back into fundamentalism, if you know what I mean. But uh, not that we're sort of old school fundamentalistic here. I don't mean that. But there is a place for pure fun in our discipleship ministries. It is love language for many young people to enjoy being together, have fun and play together and go and see a basketball game and all that. Very important. Uh, but still, throughout it all, is God's Word, the functional centrality of God's Word. Well, we started with um, Second Timothy. Uh, let me uh, conclude with another very famous verse. And as I say, you've got those Old Testament and New Testament um, uh, documents that will give you all sorts of details that I wrote some time ago, but I've recently updated. So if you've seen them before, there's some new information in them that you might enjoy. If you haven't seen them before, uh, there's a lot there. Um, but uh, the famous verse we should, as we come towards the end of our time together this evening, Hebrews 4 verse 12, uh, the author of Hebrews says this, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is living and active. Perhaps then we can see uh, this evening why Charles Spurgeon, when he was talking about defending the Bible in his inimical way, Charles Spurgeon said, defend the Bible I'd rather defend a lion. The Word of God is living and active. It can look after itself. Started with Martin Luther. Let me close with a, um, a, distinguished, a quotation from a distinguished classical scholar who discovered Jesus. Uh, J.B. Phillips, you know, may know, translated the Bible into English. Um, he once had an interview with this distinguished classical scholar called Dr. E.V. Rue, R-I-E-U. 
he translated Homer into very modern English for the Penguin Classics. When he was 60 uh, and had been a lifelong agnostic or atheist, uh, he was invited to translate the Gospels. And apparently this uh, Dr. Rue's son said, it will be interesting to see what Father makes of the four Gospels. It will be even more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of Father. Um, a year later, having gotten to uh, translating them, a year later, Dr. Rue became convinced and became a Christian and a member of a church. And J.B. Phillips, who was interviewing him, asked him this. Did you not get the feeling that the whole material was extraordinarily alive? And Rue replied, I got the deepest feeling. My work changed me. I came to the conclusion that these words bear the seal of the Son of Man and God. And they are the Magna Carta of the human spirit. Yes, God's word is authoritative. Here's uh, how we put it in terms of this principle number two, the ten foundational principles of a God-centered life. The very words of God, of greater worth than silver or gold, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path, wiser than any human wisdom, true manna from heaven. We live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It shall never pass away. This book is the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, that your word is authoritative and good and beautiful and powerful, living, active. We pray, Lord, that it would do its work among us this evening as we fellowship together afterwards, enjoy each other's company as we are bound together by your word, as we encourage one another through the week as people of your word as we live for you, confident in the truth of your word uh, this week, as we serve at home and at church or work, knowing that we have an authoritative word to guard us and to guide us. Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.